0: And welcome to another episode of SurgePod, the podcast that takes you behind the surgical mask. I'm your host, Carrie Shaw, junior doctor and default candidate at the University of Oxford.
1: On
2: today's episode. It really is going to be the future
1: of surgery, of medicine. To see how our lives will change and how technology will change things.
0: I'll be talking to some of the team behind COVID Surge, the largest global cohort study of surgery during COVID. I have with me Elizabeth Lee, a general surgery registrar, and Harvinder Mann, a general surgery SHO, both in Birmingham. Lizzie is also an NIHR doctoral research fellow in surgical innovation, and Harvey is an NIHR ACF. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be invited and um, a great opportunity to be to speak to yourself about our projects and also to your audience as well.
1: Thank you very much, Kerry, for inviting us. I'm really looking forward to sharing the work that COVID-19 have been doing over the past year in this podcast. The COVID-19 Thank you. pandemic is an unprecedented global crisis.
0: Patient care has dramatically changed worldwide. And we have very little information on how to best care for surgical Research
1: patients. and development have played a central a role. group of international surgeons and anithesis. We're part of the COVID Surge Collaborative. 7. And share international experience to improve surgical Working care. Working with sure. thousands of researchers all over the world to accelerate.
0: COVID Surge includes over 120 countries. That's more than half the world.
2: <laughs> how does it feel? It feels... Um, sort of unreal really when we started this it was but a burgeoning idea with a very small group of people and we hadn't planned to really recruit any more than about 100 patients but interest was there this was the topic of the day within medicine and surgery and the whole world and it grew and grew and we um used this to try and deliver fast research that was patient-centered and data-driven as quickly as possible.
1: I definitely agree with Lizzie. We really didn't see it being sort of as big as it did when we started off with. Um, and it's only through the success of collaboration and also the use of sort of virtual meetings and virtual networks that we had already and creating new, new, new networks over social media and also throughout the links that everyone had to make it such a success.
0: And COVID surge began. Is it about a year ago? So, how did you guys
2: get involved? So, COVID surge came from the Global Surgery Unit, which was already established within the University of Birmingham. This unit is centred around um, research that uh, uh, benefits patients of all um, from countries of all economic backgrounds, and also that has already um, that established a very good network that was already present. Um, However, that network was more focused on trials, there were small parts of research that was happening, but rather low key comparatively. What we found was that when COVID came around, the the huge amount of concern that the medical and surgical community had um, really spread within this network. And as Harvey mentioned, There were um, very um, prominent members of this network, almost like nodes, I guess, that spoke the message to all of their team, their countries, their collaborators, and really um, set the message to how important it was that we discovered new data on this novel coronavirus. Because at that beginning... And at that beginning, we had no data whatsoever, and there was a lot of guidance that was um, being uh, put out by surgical societies, but it was only based on opinion, which was um, the best that we had. So it was critical that we did have actual patient data-driven data.
0: You know that's so important nowadays having. You're right. Patient driven data. And how do we actually take this data and make it relevant to our patients? And, and actually, Harvey, I've got a question for you. So you and I are relatively junior. We're both sort of academically, surgically inclined. And something I found, especially during my Ph.D., is because I'm still junior clinically, I sometimes have to think really hard about how to make my research relevant to clinical patients. So I just wondered, how have you made sure that the research is translatable to clinical practice?
1: I agree with you, Kerry. Uh, we, we as juniors, we're very much um, working on, on the floor, may, not always making the critical decisions ourselves as to who would go to theatre, um, the patient flow and the types of procedures and also undertaking the procedures that are taking place. And sometimes in research, it is difficult to sort of to to translate that or create the studies or work within the studies that would be translatable in clinical practice. And I think that's almost part of our learning process, both as academic uh, research, junior researchers and also um, junior trainees as well within surgery. Um, we would look towards the decisions that are being made. We look around us and see what's happening, looking at the guidelines. And I think the most important aspect in making sure that the research is translatable is guidance from our seniors, guidance from the key policymakers, including the surgical consultants, including the senior academic researchers, and also the policymakers, the people in the hospitals that are making these decisions, and the different factors that would influence these decisions on a day-to-day basis, which we may not always see from the junior level, and also from the research aspect as well, which is why it's so important to have that guidance, to have that support of the wider multidisciplinary team.
0: Absolutely, I, I really hear that. And you've talked guys about having lots of sites involved. You know, we've talked about 120 countries, lots of big data. Has that been difficult? Is there anything that surprised you about working with big data or lots of sites?
2: With lots of sites, um, we had already some background from um, previous studies that we've conducted that um, were very global, but nothing on this scale. So there was quite a lot of scaling up, but from fairly simple models we had before. So it's very important to establish a a good communication model with national leads, with a good dissemination committee that are responsible, that are knowledgeable, and that um, are um, great communicators with us as well, so that we are able to really move forward, galvanise this group of surgeons. We also needed pragmatically to set up very simple pathways that people could come to us with problems so that we can solve them very quickly. The other aspect of working with a lot of sites and also a lot of countries, meaning a lot of different languages, is actually to design your project as simple as possible. So going back to one of your previous points about delivering these big projects, you really do need to really find the pain point of what the question is people are more interested in a subject matter that really has relevance to them their patients their community so knowing the literature to a certain degree but knowing where the, the horizon is horizon scanning in a way is really critically important so that the most pressing needs are being answered in your project then um, designing your project is also something that ought to be given a lot of thought you do need to make this simple and I mean you need to have a clear question that you want people to answer you need to have a very simple protocol which s- asks for ideally simple and um, uh, patient factors or hospital factors to be able to not only answer your question but not burden your collaborators either So working with a big group is very much about the design and about the execution itself. When it gets to actually working with them, it is very much a team effort. We um, by no means were alone. We had a huge, very dedicated group that ranged from very junior medical students and non-medics entirely all the way to consultants who all offered their individual um, expertise and their time as well which was very precious when everybody was redeployed Um, and it really was about um, using people's time effectively if they're on nights you're not going to ask them to do lots and lots of work but at the same time if they had a break you could potentially ask everyone to chip in. Good morning everyone and welcome to our new remote MDT which is a new change that we have started in response to the COVID pandemic. So this morning, can we start with the newly diagnosed patients? And I would ask you all to identify which study they can go into. The other thing about a very big group and and a lot of of countries is giving everyone updates because we're all human. We like to know what progress is. We like to know what our targets are and what little successes we have achieved. And those little updates were very helpful, really did carry the momentum and uh, really could deliver results at the end. So
0: say I am sitting in another country. So actually, I grew up in Kenya. So say I'm sitting out in Kenya And I've heard about COVID surge and I'm a clinician or a surgeon or, you know, I don't know, hospital director. How do I get involved? You know, do I call you guys up, send you send you an email? How does it actually work?
1: And so the way we had it set up was within we had we had our core team based in the UK. And then in addition to that, we had the regional leads who would then span out into the national leads and then local leads on a very local level. Um, in terms of dissemination, we used a variety of methods, including social media, including emailing out to mail lists of, the, of trainees across across the world and across the different regions as well and we, we got a lot of response back from a lot of different countries at different levels, from both so, both both small hospitals and rural locations to large tertiary care centers and university hospitals across the world. So um, for your example, yourself, um, where you mentioned uh, someone working in in Kenya uh, and how how would they get involved with with us? So there were a variety. We were very approachable ourselves, offering offering our details in terms of emails, social media, messaging. And also we made it quite aware that there were national and regional leads on our website. And we directed a lot of our social media attention to our website where they'd be able to find their local and national leads uh, we have their d- details up on the website, which they would then go about contacting to so that they could organise it on a local level as well. But I think the, the, most, the, the biggest thing was that w- we, we made sure that we were all approachable by the different mediums and also making sure that the regional and local leads were also very, very approachable as well so that we could get as many people involved as possible.
0: That is a huge undertaking. And, you know, well done to your team for for managing that. Um, and I just wondered for you guys, Harvey, Lizzie, what are your day-to-day roles in, in COVID surge?
1: So I myself, uh, when working with COVID search, I, I worked a lot on it in my academic placement when I was based here in the, in the uh, global surgery unit. And on a day-to-day basis, when COVID search was taking place, when the, the actual study was running at the time, I would be responsible uh, for leading the Africa, the region of Africa. So, liaising with the national leads, liaising with the local leads as well, and making sure that regarding sort of depending on which part of the process we were part of. So, starting from the beginning uh, with the dissemination, making sure we were sending emails out, updating social media, responding to the requests, and trying to gain as much attention to it within the region as possible. And then, when we did start to get people developing their Interest and then registering, getting them registered onto our system, and then building the, that that network and infrastructure within the region and also globally as well. Um, from from that point of view, and then when the study started, the role changed. So the role was changing depending on where where we were in the study. So when the study did start, it was making sure that all the uh, all the registrants had their had their logins or they were all able to enter data successfully, and they also knew what they were they were entering as well and, and making sure they knew what they were doing at the time and then also making sure there was a completeness of data and checking p- checking the request and checking the data to ensure that it was complete and going back to those people asking them to uh, whether they were able to complete that data and, and uh, fill it in appropriately and then um after that it, it, it then it then then we began sort of the um, sort of tying up the loose ends from the actual study period and making sure that if there was any follow up data to be to be organised so that they could, so that they could uh, do that according, according to the protocol as well.
2: Yeah, I, I would definitely second that. Um, it was a huge mix of different roles, really. And um, that really is the fundamentals of collaborative research everybody brings in their own um, unique qualities and their own skills. And it really enriches that mix. When um, the study is in development or in delivery, everyone can chip in in slightly different ways. So um, a lot of what I did today today is simple things like answer emails. But at the same time, if there was an issue, we would meet and problem solve. So for example, if somebody had a problem with red cap or they were uncertain how they should register their team then it was talking about how we can do this so it's scalable and going forwards it would work and give us our information it is also about planning ahead about what the paper would look like which is again quite important if there's an issue we find halfway through this uh, the project is this something we can simply cut away that it's not going to be that relevant and ultimately will not really benefit everybody reading it and would be too burdensome for the collaborators? Or is this something we must tackle right now? So there's a lot of problem solving. There was a lot of meetings. There's a lot of moving around to what you're doing sometimes when, as Harvey mentioned, um, the time specifically was data cleaning or it was um, uh, going through free text, everybody came together and worked on that one particular problem. So that really is the beauty of collaborative research. And you'll find that somebody's great at websites, somebody's great at um, data analysis, somebody's great at IT. And with that pitching together, you really do deliver something that is essentially almost peer reviewed before it's even come out, which is the beauty of it. And very trainee led. So we had medical students on our highest level meetings that were able to offer great insight into what it would be like if they were the one leading in a hospital, what they would feel like, what support they would want. And that really enabled us to open our ideas and thoughts about how to really deliver this.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what you've touched on is immense. That collaborative research is really just harnessing experts from all over the world but then (laughs) it's a bit of a logistical nightmare so lizzie i mean do do you see collaborative studies being the style of research in the future and you know you're coming to the end of your training you're almost a consultant so are you going to keep working on this type of research in the future as a consultant
2: yeah that that's a great question um Collaborative research definitely has a huge potential in the future. We are not lone islands anymore. We have to recognise the issues that impact globally as well. And although obviously the UK had its specific issues, I'm sure the West Midlands and Oxford would have specific issues as well. The questions that often need to be answered are very applicable throughout the entire world or at least more than one center and what collaborative research offers Firstly, just at the study level, is that you have a lot of buy-ins from different stakeholders. And very often you'll be surprised at the ideas, suggestions that they come forward with. Um, We have a dissemination committee from uh, many different countries who are consultants, very junior doctors, who offer us feedback on a lot of our early ideas. And this is almost like um, an expression of interest of certain thoughts that we've had. And they were the ones who helped us generate the questions that needed to be answered the most. So it's almost like a group, a very complex process that comes together to a very simple question. Furthermore, what collaborative research really does is grow those communities and networking and communities. It sounds a, a bit naff. But it really is going to be the future of surgery, of medicine. Very soon, we are about to hit um, a technological, like um, uh, it's going to exponentially take off uh, alongside um, not only sort of software, but hardware and devices. And we're going to get to a point where, we're not going to be the surgeons of old. We don't choose a speciality and we stick to it for our entire careers or we know more and more about less and less. We may become redundant because someone's invented a new machine that just does our surgery for us. We may need to move into a different field. We, we may get bored and we may need some more new challenges. Having those network connections, exposing yourself to different ideas, to the entire community globally is I think the potential that holds the most um, uh, uh, innovation, the most interest and um, having those networks there just sets the platform ready so that when things are about to take off, it's there already and it can spawn a lot more. And I think what's
0: really struck me with what you're saying from COVID surge is that it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're a med student, if you're a consultant, if you're from another country, what matters is that you're interested, you want to work in collaborative research, and you're drawing this all together. And I think that's just incredible. Um, And I want to hear results. (laughs) But first, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better in our next segment behind the surgical mask. So fun, three fun questions for each of you. Are you ready? Okay. first question. Lots of us are working from home at the moment. You guys are doing academic work, maybe from home. What is your favourite room to work in? Maybe Harvey first?
1: Uh, Yep. So my favourite room would probably be my living room, Uh, most probably because there's the most amount of sunlight in there at the moment. And it's very close to the kitchen as well. So if I ever want to make a cup of tea or coffee, it's not far to walk for there as well.
2: Yes, snacks. I'm all for the snacks. a snacks,
1: (laughs) A lot of snacks.
2: Um, Definitely the kitchen. I'm even closer to the snacks (laughs) and uh, the kitchen has uh, the best Wi-Fi, which I have to say right now dictates my life. Where can I find the best Wi-Fi?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Second question, maybe Lizzie first. Have you ever had a pet?
2: Yes, I, I used to have um, a small Chihuahua who um, is very cheeky. He um, he's now my mum's Chihuahua, and uh, she looks after him because I had a baby, which is um, much more demanding. Let's put it like that. Um, but uh, it, it's it's lovely to have a pet just because they do um, they they offer so much um, like. Um, uh, unquestioned adoration and love, especially dogs, I think. And um, they certainly are very important to people. So, um, yeah, a tiny yappy chihuahua.
0: <laughs> Harvey, what about you? Any pets?
1: Um, So yeah, I had a pet when I had a a dog when I was growing up, a Siberian Husky, um, who who was absolutely adorable and uh, incredible to grow up with. Uh, He was very demanding with energy, wanted to go on lots and lots of walks and always wanted to play when he was at home. But as Lizzie said, they're incredibly loving creatures that give unconditional love all of the time. If you had a time machine,
0: Lizzie, would you go back in time or into the future?
2: Oh, future, absolutely. Um, I was always a bit of a Star Trek fan, geekily so, when I was uh, younger. And it just fascinates me what potential, um, not just medical, but innovation uh, at all in the future. I mean, since when we were very little, um, the thought of an iPhone, the thought of the expanse and power of the internet, the the, the new, like, um Areas of work that have popped up that are filling these sort of like knowledge or need gaps is absolutely astounding. And it, it does feel very exciting. We do, I do feel like we are at this brink of a technological takeoff. And even in a hundred years' time, um, humans will be living so differently. And it will just be very interesting what they would see what they would think of what we practice as well and um, how we um, really look after
0: ourselves. Harvey, back in time or into the future?
1: Definitely into the future. I agree with Lizzie uh, with regards to technology. One thing that makes me really excited about the future is to see how our lives will change and how technology will change things so so dramatically. Even within the last five years or ten years we our, our practices have changed considerably and uh, I, I can't wait to see what we've got to come in the future and it's it's nice it would be amazing to see what 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 we've got to come and then to come back and kind of compare that already to uh, what we have already I'm, I'm really looking forward to it
2: I was gonna say also um, it, it's if the pandemic happened even 10 or 5 years ago there wouldn't have been this infrastructure for Zoom for all the emailing for everything that we needed to do so it, it just this whole lockdown would have not worked so it's strange that it's just happened right now and this technology this disruptive force has just changed everything that everybody does which is like astounding and these disruptive forces are going to come thick and fast we just need to be ready for the next one.
1: In the covid CERT cohort study, we are assessing outcomes of surgery in patients who are diagnosed with COVID-19. Surgical team modelling study will help us to estimate the number of surgeons out of work throughout the pandemic.
2: With our cohort studies, we are developing a set of modelling studies to inform hospital management and team play.
0: I want to know about these results. Now, COVID search has had huge hitting results. You've got work published in The Lancet, leading medical journals. Tell us, what are the take home
2: messages? So the take home messages really have evolved very much throughout this last year as the pandemic has evolved in itself. The first very prominent um, uh, publication was uh, in The Lancet, although a slightly less known but still a very well cited um, uh, paper was about firstly the cancellations that were happening what happened after lockdown were elective surgery was being cancelled? What we estimated was 28 million were cancelled across the globe, the vast majority in benign surgery, as you would expect. And now, as we are moving forwards, we're thinking about trying to relook at this result again. And a lot of the data is suggesting that it is going to take us years to be able to catch up to this. The the prominent Lancet paper, as I alluded to um, uh, earlier, is really looking at what the outcomes were because we needed to know what was happening to these patients with COVID. We could always look at data from um, SARS-CoV-1 uh, or um, H1N1 or other different viruses. But this was the novel virus, and what that showed was there was a very high post-operative mortality rate, high rate of post-operative pulmonary complications as well, and that was so important to have figures, to have um, patient le- uh, patient-level data, to inform policymakers, to really allow surgeons to think about the operations they did. And also consent their patients with real information, not opinion.
0: So we're already seeing, you know, in March, I think it was the Royal College of Anaesthetists said that maybe surgery should be delayed for COVID positive patients to reduce the risk of death. And that was coming out of a paper from you guys at COVID Surge. So are you seeing that policy is changing based on your results? You know, how do we go from research to policy and making our patients safe?
1: So. I, I, I'm currently working as an SHO uh, in the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham on surgery and even on, on the ground level we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the consultants and the nurses making decisions and the wider team on based on the findings that, 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 uh, that we are producing. One of the things that covid are very good at doing is disseminating the information as soon as, soon as they've got it uh, in terms of with webinars and up to date, up to date feeds on social media as well. And this is really catching the eye of a lot of um, a lot of the consultants in surgery and anesthesia and medicine as well. Um, to to influence their decisions, and definitely on the ground on a ground level, I've I've seen myself the an making decisions on whether patients should be going to surgery. And consultant general surgeons making decisions if someone has been diagnosed with COVID in the last six months, making that part of their their decision making process as to whether these patients should be going to surgery, and even um, g- going from a from a high level from a policy level, we are seeing. A lot of them, as you said, with the RCS releasing guidelines as well about uh, patients undergoing surgery with a COVID diagnosis and thinking about whether it should be delayed. These policies are starting to change and it's, it's, a, it's a great achievement for research that we're doing on such a scale for it to be so quickly being implemented into today's, today's policymaking. And also not only that, but on a personal level by the clinicians who have read this research and made their decisions based on the research that they've read.
2: What we have really seen as well from the, the, all of the papers in between, there was um, a paper about COVID free surgical pathways. We've also tackled the, uh, the problem of timing after surgery for patients who've already had COVID. When is it safe to operate on them? They are a big group that is growing in size and we urgently need to perform their operations we also looked at um, nasopharyngeal swabbing before their operations and the benefits and when to do that and also we looked at modeled what um, a vaccination for surgical patients would do and this has been a quite a huge process to be able to get to that fast delivery of surgery which really is going to be the model for the future we think because Um, previously you would do your research you'd submit it to a paper it would stay in the system or get rejected and bounced around up to a year almost or even more and that model means that you're really not helping any patients during that period of time so what has happened in COVID which again is a disruptive force in a way is the urgency of need to have information means that Rapid access, sorry, rapid publication was being pushed forwards. Pay, uh, journals were having free open access, which is very helpful for um, researchers, also very helpful for um, people to access, especially in lower middle income countries. People were much more accepting of preprints as well. Journals were talking to us a lot more. They had a lot more reviewers at hand as well to quickly get through articles. And then also on our side as well, we, as Harvey said, we really pushed through our data. It's not about which journal you publish in, it really is about how you. Um, Disseminate this data what is the impact and what is your delivery between research to actually practice change you have to engage societies such as the college of anesthetists royal college of surgeons to really engage and take note of what the the data shows and um, and finally really to um, yeah thank your collaborators in in this process it really is a huge process but it probably is going to be the model for the future. We have a duty of care to um, really deliver our research to save lives as soon as possible.
0: I think you've hit the million dollar point now that actually, granted, the research is good quality, but how do we go from good quality research to making sure it's out there it's out there quickly safely it's accessible people can understand it that that's a big you know point here and actually when when I think about it um I've recently been reading from the Royal College of Surgeons that there are huge delays in surgical treatment I mean we we can see this even as clinicians and in January official figures were telling us almost a quarter of a million patients have waited over nine months you know that's 10 times more than the number a year ago. (laughs) So of course, we want to keep our patients safe. But how do you guys think we should balance this, keeping them safe or delaying their treatment or...
2: Um, so we are we actually um, very soon going to launch a, a surgical toolkit. So watch this space. It, you will be able to Google it. The S- secure surgery toolkit that does reference a lot of the research um, data that we have already gathered. And it gives step by step information on um What your host, based on what your hospital is like, do you have lots of resources in a clean hospital? Are you able to do swabs? What our recommendation is around vaccination? What our recommendations are depending on patient factors as well, such as if they've got cancer or if they're older. So, um, to answer your question, it's very complex and which group do you operate on first? When do you operate? Is very dependent on the patient that's sat in front of you, the center that you're in, and the country that you're in as well. So um, I, I would, yeah, urge anyone that is in doubt to um, uh, Google Secure Surgery 2025 when uh, the, the website's launched, which will be very soon. And it does take you through it in a very simple um, process. Um, but uh, pragmatically, it is about um, joint decision making (laughs) between you and your patients and to let them know about the needs and the risks of their pathology that needs surgery and also what may happen after surgery as well. I guess that has always been the case. When does the benefit outweigh the risks? And we as surgeons, this is our forte really um, we make decisions we make hard decisions but this data will allow you to have some evidence base and also speak to your patients and really be able to inform them of what is happening.
1: Uh, it's all about balancing uh, between the risk of delaying the treatment and, and the, risk, the risk that would would come about with with COVID as well and even from from, from, the, from from what I've seen so far we're seeing a lot of complications now because patients are being delayed from surgery whether that be from cold from, from gallbladders and cholecystectomies not happening to uh, cancer operations that are causing patients presenting with obstruction and uh, and what, what we are ending up doing is a lot more emergency surgery as a result of the elective surgery not taking place and the conversations that I'm seeing with between the consultants and the patients are very much uh, especially the ones that have come in with these complications are are that there is a risk of undertaking surgery but there's a bigger risk of not undertaking the surgery and it's about that joint decision making process between the patient and the consultant and the the changing the, the way the consent is taken and also changing the way in which we, we discuss things and ensure that they are aware of the risks of, of having surgery and not having surgery as well. And again, as Lizzie said, it's, it's all about balancing and joint decision-making there on a case-by-case basis.
0: I can see why you guys both want to go to the future <laughs> because, you know, you're already thinking about toolkits, you're already thinking about, you know, modelling things, you're already thinking about what do we do next now that we've got the results? How do we implement that? And how do we make these decisions and balance risks? Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on this podcast. It has been so inspiring to hear your stories. Thank you for helping us understand the work and the results of COVID surge. And, you know, you've really shown us the power of collaborative research, the power of data. Thank you. You know, thanks to your whole team for stepping up and really during this Horrible, stressful period, coming to to inform us and, and shape the future of surgery. And thanks for coming on this podcast.
2: Thank you, it's a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. It's, it's, thank you for inviting us to
0: our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We want to hear your comments, so join us on Instagram at Dr. Carrie Shah and at SurgePod Podcast and on Twitter at Carrie Shah and at COVID Surge. Shout out to my producer, Myra Anubi, and we'll see you next time.